Hello and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm John Brannigan from UCD School of English, Drama and Film. This lecture in the series The Literatures and Cultures of the Irish Sea will be given by Professor Andrew Gibson, Research Professor of Modern Literature and Theory, Royal Holloway, University of London. At the Dying Atlantic's Edge, Norman Nicholson and the Cumbrian Coast. This lecture is about Norman Nicholson, born in 1914 and died in 1987. In his time, he was widely regarded as, to quote the Times obituary, the most gifted English Christian provincial poet of the century and was a noteworthy figure on T.S. Eliot's poetry list at Faber, which set so much of the tune from 1945 onwards. Nicholson's poetry suffered something of an eclipse in the 70s and after. The times were not on its side, and its concerns were apparently not theirs. But there are now at least some signs of a serious Nicholson revival, notably in David Boyd's forthcoming and extremely well-informed biography, and the scholarly work of David Cooper. Nicholson came from West Cumberland, where he spent almost the whole of his life. He might be defined as, in effect, the only major West Cumbrian poet, and therefore, since R.S. Thomas was of course Welsh, perhaps the only major modern writer of the English Atlantic Edge, particularly in that he was singularly committed to his liminal space. What the poem entitled On Dudden Marsh calls The Line Dividing Europe from the Atlantic spending his whole life in the small, backward, forgotten industrial town of Millam at the very southwestern coastal tip of his county. From this, I think, something rather special springs. National mythology, literature, criticism and tourism have long coincided in presenting Cumbria until 1974 known as Cumberland, as in effect an inland space or territory, the Lake District. This imaginary construction serves as both a national heartland, analogous to Surrey, Garden of England, and privileged repository of the national soul, cherished in its beauty by poets and solicitously tended by its wardens. It functions in effect as what Cooper, quoting cultural geographer David Matlas, evokes as a social-spiritual space, a topography in which the mystical rubs shoulders with the legislative. As such, however, it excludes another Cumbria. This Cumbria is the coastal area that begins with the western fells and ends further west at the Irish Sea running from the Solway Firth in the north to the Dudden Estuary in the south. The grey, unphotographed waste acres of West Cumberland, as Nicholson describes them, border on the Atlantic. 
On its eastern side, it includes some of the county's most beautiful, if remote and empty, lakes and valleys, and its highest mountains. But as Cooper remarks of Nicholson's Millam, though Wordsworth, for example, engages on occasions with a westerly Cumbria, the features of the western region that I have just stressed, in fact, remain marginal to the normative mythology, to the romantic and post-romantic Lake District and the tourist trail. The western fells cannot be construed as integral to a heartland. On the western fells, the sense of the coast looms large. On the western peaks, from Scorfell to Coniston Old Man to Black Coombe, one is vividly aware of how far Cumbria is a culture of the Atlantic edge, that it ends at the sea. This Atlantic edge is invisible or ignorable from within the heartland, at least if we think of the heartland as represented above all by, say, Ambleside, Hawkshead or Wordsworth's Grasmere. Here one might think the myth of the inward and self-enfolded spirit of the island race runs out into the silts and shallows of the Dudden estuary. At the same time, the coast not only has its often bleak and austere beaches, but is strewn as here and there are the western fells, with the marks of an invasive modernity from which the heartland has been carefully protected though it has actually assumed its own forms of modernity too. There is some point to saying, as did W.H. Auden, that the Lake District was another bourgeois invention like the piano. Long gone mines, mineral railways and blast furnaces, the coastal railway, the nuclear plant at Sellafield or Windscale, the MOD's so-called equipment-proving, big-gun-firing range at Eskmeals, the landscapes intermittently, casually contaminated with industrial and increasingly radioactive waste and ruination. Norman Nicholson is the poet par excellence of Cumbria's Atlantic Edge. In geographical and geological terms, the Cumbrian coastal plain. Both his books on Lakeland and his scattered poems on the Lake District show him defining his poetic identity in contradistinction to the Lake poets. Cooper sees the coastal area of Cumbria as geographically and imaginatively distant from the Wordsworthian centre, like the spoke of a wheel to its nave. Distant, that is, but nonetheless connected to it. Nicholson's endeavour is therefore to reconfigure the space of the region, collapsing a, quote, post-romantic hierarchization of regional space. But that is not a vision of it, I think, that Nicholson's poetry exactly promotes. And we should remember that Nicholson's reputation prior to his death was chiefly as a poet and is likely to continue to be so. I thought of myself as a Millam boy, writes Nicholson, not as a Cumbrian. 
true. As Cooper emphasises, he, Nicholson, explicitly raises the question of Wordsworth's vision of the area in his poem To the River Dudden. But that, as Cooper knows, is because of Wordsworth's distinguished Dudden River sonnet sequence. Nicholson is squabbling with Wordsworth over border territory. Otherwise, Cooper's argument is above all sustainable in the terms in which he chiefly makes it, on the basis of Nicholson's prose works. It is notably confirmed by Greater Lakeland, which were produced with a more commercial end in mind and certainly partly address a rather different readership. Nicholson's poetry, then, I would suggest, is scarcely a poetry of the Lake District as such at all. It is a poetry of the Atlantic Edge. This is arguably most obviously the case with the first two volumes, Five Rivers and Rock Face, and the late volume, Sea to the West. But I would also claim that it determines the content of all the other volumes, with the possible exception of a local habitation, that the themes of the poet of the Atlantic Edge continue, if sometimes also in rather different versions and guises, in the other volumes. In other words, the space of the Atlantic Edge fairly comprehensively determines the character of Nicholson's vision and the substance of what he has to say. I'll give a brief account of five crucial features of this vision. Firstly, as I've already indicated, Nicholson's is a landscape largely bounded in the east by the western fells. He only very seldom makes reference to the northern, central or eastern fells. Even a poem like Skiddaw Slate turns out to be about, not Skiddaw, a northern peak, but Black Coombe, a western one, because Black Coombe is composed of the slate in question. Yet at the same time, what is striking is that Nicholson almost never looks out on the Atlantic or even the Irish Sea in itself. The maiden in one of his songs of the island feels the tug in the blood at the shingle's edge, but this is very rare. In Nicholson, prospects seldom beckon, vistas almost never spread wide. Nicholson had Irish blood in him, and Boyd points out that there was a substantial Irish immigrant presence amongst the early Millam workers. But save for the occasional reference to winds blowing in from Ulster, or perhaps more interestingly Sligo, Nicholson the poet has little or no interest in Ireland, or indeed the Isle of Man, which is clearly visible from his Atlantic edge. And seemingly no interest in the history of their relations with England. Unlike so many comparable Irish writers, he also has little or no interest in the American horizon, a distant America and the freedom of its open spaces. Indeed, he very explicitly turns away from the American will-o'-the-wisp in what the title of one poem calls the affirming blasphemy. That to which we cannot return is not to be found before us. There is no other garden 
beyond the bright sea. This has three effects all relevant to my argument. Geographically speaking, Nicholson's theme is a stretch of land separated from the north and south by estuaries and from the east by mountains. Imaginatively, he operates within a narrow coastal strip with its single coastal road, quote, gashed like a long wound. And this sense of spatial constraint has major consequences for the poetry. It is further enhanced by the poet's indifference to looking outward. On Nicholson's particular coast, the Atlantic comes in to die, to peter out into estuarial mud, silt, sands, stonescapes and marshlands, to lose itself in obscure miscellanea and debris, rack and rubble. Yet Nicholson's imagination is also repeatedly haunted by the notion that the sea may violently rise up, overwhelm and devour the land, the moment when, quote, the tall waves bound over the mountain tops, as he puts it in the bow in the cloud. At all events, again and again, in Nicholson, the land-sea vector points inwards, not outwards. Secondly, Nicholson is abundantly aware of the history of the coast. Incursions of the galleys that came to Ravensglass, I quote. The Romans, the Vikings, the Scots and Picts, quote, foraging down from Solway Moss, the English from further south. The Industrial Revolution and the discovery of hematite ore, the rise, brisk decline and eclipse of the mines, iron and steelworks, the arrival of evacuees during the Second World War, quote, the children hurried from a German Herod, the transfer of art from the Tate Gallery to Cumbria at the same time, and so on. But his grasp and presentation of this history is as an episodic one. He deliberately refuses to grace it with any larger meaning or coherence. His poetry does not reflect or countenance any larger historical narrative of the coast, say, a quasi-colonial one. The word is not idle. Nicholson himself writes of colonising voices. Nor does his poetry struggle to produce such a narrative. His project is not, in that sense, integrative. This is even more strikingly the case in that, thirdly, though his poetry ranges from Maryport to Whitehaven, St Bees, Cletamore, Egremont, Ravensglass, Sarcroft, above all Millam and indeed Walney Island, at least in his poetry, Nicholson has no concept of, or interest in, a culture or cultures. If he does claim, in Greater Lakeland, to have, quote, a sense of belonging, this makes little appearance in the poetry. Indeed, as a poet, he is more likely to treat such a concept ironically, as in the poem Nicholson, Suddenly. 
This is the more notable in that Nicholson was in large part writing in an era that granted a specific prestige to the concept of the organic community, as promoted, for example, by Raymond Williams. For in Western Cumbria, there is no organic community. The Millam Nicholson knows is in fact, quote, a decaying Victorian settlement that began as a miserable encampment of huts and sheds struggling up out of a waste of dune, salt marsh and swampy fields, as he tells us in Greater Lakeland. He is acutely aware that it was only two generations previously that in 1867 his grandmother arrived from across the Duddon estuary in a cart, still possessed of memories of farmland. So too he is keenly aware, for instance, of how far the mining communities of the West, Wales, Scotland, Cornwall, Cumbria, were not in fact deeply and stably rooted in their worlds, that they had frequently been in large measure made up of incomers who remained itinerant and transient, moving or being moved where the work moved. He is equally aware of just how fast and how drastically macroeconomic change afflicts such a precarious world. See, for instance, Hodbarrow flooded, the riddle on the closing of Millam Ironworks. In effect, for Nicholson, there is no coastal culture. In this respect, he separates himself not only from the lake poets, but from the whole tradition of English provincial poetry, Crabbe, Clare, Hardy, early Lawrence, to which his work has more often been linked. Historically, then, too, this is a land of detritus, the incoherent offscourings of history. The sense of spatial constraint in Nicholson's poetry pushes him in two directions. Fourthly, if he cannot see and largely refuses to imagine eastward beyond the western fells and turns away from the oceanic perspective westwards, nor can he look to the south. There is scarcely a reference to an England south of Widnes. This is hardly surprising in a poet from a part of the country distant and in some degree alienated from southern values. See, for example, the poem Bond Street. If Nicholson's imagination does expand, it is rather northwards, in small part to Scotland, but above all to Scandinavia and the Arctic. Turn then, says Frost Flowers, the face to the cold north, to where beneath the North Star roll the Arctic circles of the soul. The only foreign country with which any of the poems are concerned is Norway. The only foreign country, apparently, that Nicholson ever visited. In Nicholson's poetry, thus, the relevant Atlantic edge runs from the Irish Sea to the Skagorak and the Norwegian Sea, as far as the Barents Sea. The north is where vast cold and chilling winds come from. It splits Cumbria off from the England to the south. The North claims Cumbria for its own. 
To think Cumbria and the North together is also to think England disintegratively. To think the Atlantic Edge as where Anglo-Saxondom fades and starts to perish, and that other great founding British people after the Roman Empire, the Norsemen, assert their cultural sway. Indeed, insofar as Nicholson was interested in the Irish strain in the population of Millam and Cumbria generally, it seems in large measure to have been because he was in turn particularly interested in the Viking strain in the Irish and therefore how far, in a sense, the Irish might be claimed for the North. Nicholson is acutely aware of and knowledgeable about the historical Viking presence in Cumbria, as Greater Lakeland again makes clear. His poem for the Greek centenary even suggests that his feeling of true artistic kinship might be with the great Norwegian composer as much as the provincial English poets. Not least because, as is evident in various of his writings, he is so aware of Norse thickening the English he speaks and writes. But the narrowness of Nicholson's world, as he defines it, also has another spatial consequence. If the Atlantic edge for him is only ever a thin strip, whether it runs from the Dudden estuary to the Solway Firth, or the Dudden estuary to Tromso, Hammerfest and beyond, the narrowness also encourages the mind to follow the perpendiculars of the western mountain ranges, to raise his eyes towards what, in the Elvers, he calls my parochial complement of sky. The paradox is that for Nicholson, to think the Atlantic edge is also to think the vertical. Nicholson's imagination is constantly drawn upwards. No doubt this reflects a religious drive, yet the vertical dimension in Nicholson's poetry is not principally, I think, the dimension of transcendence. The bell again will swing, he writes in The Bow in the Cloud, admittedly a wartime poem, and the iron crack in the wind and the boulders ring like steel and the dumb sea shout with the voice that once was shamed by man. This hardly seems to betoken any meditative release. The vertical dimension is rather, as Cooper has it, eschatological, or better, I think, messianic. See, for instance, the evocation of dawn over West Cumbria, which opens the holy mountain. Let me put the point this way. Nicholson's coastal strip is, categorically, an unredeemed land, one that has never tasted even the possibility of historical salvation, that lies comprehensively beyond the bromides of progressives. Historically, one might suggest, it has never really come into existence at all. There is nothing to be hoped for from west, east or south. If Cumbria and its history belong anywhere, it is with the north. But, like the Scots and Picts, quote, the Norsemen foraged down the dales. The axis to the north like the axis to the south with the Romans and the English, is also an axis of violence.
So, I quote, There is no rest, no refuge, there is no predicted hope. I emphasise predicted. There is God then, or there is nothing, or rather there is the event of God. Boyd tells me that Nicholson's letters to Sylvia Lubelsky in the Rylands Library show that after the period of his tuberculosis and his transferal to a sanatorium in Hampshire, he went through a spell of agnosticism, blaming religion for the world's ills. If he occasionally balanced on a knife edge of faith and faithlessness, this seems to me to be consistent with his poetic vision. Nicholson's God happens, as he must happen, if he is to have meaning, as justice. In a whole series of poems in the pot geranium, taking a more scientific turn than he had in previous volumes, Nicholson addresses the theme of the rare, even almost inexistent, reversal of self-evidence. Quote, the pool beyond the pattern. The unknown shown only by a bend in the known. As the undiscovered planet puts it. But from the angels in the sky, no trees can shutter men away. God turns upon the Atlantic edge in judgment of all who have oppressed, failed and betrayed it over, quote, centuries of feudal weight. Landowners, that is, as Boyd says, as well as industrialists, entrepreneurs and indeed governments. The very image of betrayal in Windscale, Nicholson's fine poem about it, is the demonism of the nuclear installation at Sellafield. Indeed, in some of the poems, God sends the Atlantic spilling over its edge into the wasteland, not only or even chiefly destructively or in wrath, but as a messianic image of radical justice. Nicholson's conception of the Atlantic edge is as an absolute boundary which forces the mind to think the impossible vertical transaction of which the idea of justice is a principle manifestation. Finally, Nicholson's biographical account of his early years, Wednesday early closing, suggests four key moments at least in his youthful development towards a career as a poet. I'll list them in the order which I take to have a certain bearing on his poetry rather than their chronological order. Firstly, there is the introduction via the Anglican Church, in which, for pragmatic reasons, he was confirmed. He did it in order to get to college, he tells us. To a superlative religious language. Interestingly, he specifies Thomas Cranmer. Secondly, self-evidently, there is his discovery of poetry, poetry and locale together. I fell in love, I discovered poetry, I discovered Cumberland. Thirdly, there is the great moment, inspired by reading George Bernard Shaw, 
when he turns his habitual view of Milam inside out, converting it into a vision, a vision of devastation. Quote, the land almost everywhere collapsing like a punctured tyre. Devastated, abandoned, stagnant, forgotten, a land of rot, decay, rust, weeds, a smother of hopelessness. Suddenly this explodes into emotions of, quote, anger, resentment, compassion and a paradoxically exhilarating feeling of disgust. He became acutely alive to what, in an earlier passage, he describes as the scandal, the injustice, the waste, the muddle of Milam history. This made him for a while, he says, a socialist in the Trevelyan-Macaulian tradition, though he also convicts himself in this respect of, quote, pure adolescent romanticism. But what most crucially matters is the moment of radical estrangement from an unreflective relation to a familiar context. This estrangement would later be confirmed by the period in the sanatorium, which affects a kind of double displacement. Perhaps most significantly of all, however, reeling back earlier in the life, there is a time when attending the local Methodist church, before the necessary move to Anglicanism, he is transfixed by a thought of the Holy Land. The landscape of the Bible, he writes, was far more familiar to us than the geography of England. Nicholson, I think, reimagines his Atlantic edge in biblical terms, bearing in mind that the biblical landscape is also a seaboard landscape. Boyd points to the same conflation of Palestine and Cumbria in the play The Old Man of the Mountains and the radio broadcast Millam Delivered. Nicholson rethinks his territory in and through his vision of devastation, but also as a landscape that requires the impossible redemption. This, together with the boy's love of poetry and his seduction by the beauty of a religious language, establishes the core of his poetry as messianic. Nicholson's poetic thought as a whole and the rest of the poetry are substantially organised around this core. You have been listening to Professor Andrew Gibson in this lecture series on the literatures and cultures of the Irish Sea. A transcript of this lecture is available to download from www.ucd.ie forward slash scholarcast. <music>